Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. party was dying down. You could hear the sound of dishes being cleaned and stacked in the kitchen, leftover food being packed away in to-go bags for the guests. Everyone still reclining at the table had that wonderful food coma look. You know what I'm talking about when you had way too much food and you're still wondering if you have room for dessert? It was a Thanksgiving feast of sorts. It wasn't quite Passover, but they had a lot to be thankful for. See, just a few weeks earlier, the family had gathered for a much different reason. Their only brother had fallen ill. They had sent an urgent word for help. Help us, Jesus, you're our only hope. Except help didn't come when they needed it. Their dear brother, their closest family, died. Jesus, having purposefully delayed his response to their urgent message, arrives in Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem, too late. His dear friend Lazarus has been dead in the tomb for four days. Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, went out to meet him and expressed their hurt and frustration. Lord, if only you would have been here, my brother would not have died. In response, Jesus assures Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. That he who believes in me, the giver of life, will live even if they die. In response, Jesus assures Martha, and then belief leads to life. Martha confesses her faith that Jesus is the Messiah, and deeply moved in his spirit, Jesus prays out, God, would you be glorified and show yourself to those here today that they might believe? And then in a loud voice, he cries, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died, the man who was dead and decaying for four days, walked out. Well, more like he stumbled out. He was still tightly wrapped in linen strips. And he couldn't see because his face was covered. So Jesus had to tell the stunned bystanders to let him go. This was the conversation around the table that night recounting the story over and over again. Do you remember when? Did you see that? What was it like? Did you see their reactions? You're a bit of a celebrity, Lazarus. The chief priests aren't too happy with you. They're going to try to put you to death again. This feast was to honor Jesus, who brought their brother Lazarus from death to life. 
Now, Martha was an amazing cook, and she had prepared all of Jesus' favorite foods. Well, almost all. The Jews weren't quite ready for shrimp and bacon. She had the gift of hospitality and loved to serve others. She used to grumble when she worked in the kitchen, but had learned to find the joy in serving others as her way of worshiping and honoring the Lord. As Jesus, Lazarus, and the disciples reclined at the table, Mary excused herself. They assumed Mary was going to get her guitar to sing some post-dinner worship songs or maybe God of Miracles or Do It Again. Maybe she had prepared a poem or a dramatic reading. See, Mary loved Jesus. Not in a romantic way or in a way that she had Jesus posters all over her wall. She deeply loved her Lord. See, Mary seemed to know that Jesus was unlike any other man that she knew, that he was special, he was different. She had heard him teach the disciples, and she hung on every word Jesus said, learning from him and soaking it up. She would drop anything to be in his presence, just to be with him. Mary returned to the room, and all heads turned toward her, and the room went silent. She was always a bit of a rebel and tended to ignore the social taboos in her commitment to Jesus. She had been known to sit at Jesus' feet, not a place for a woman to be, yet Jesus had commended her. But now she was going too far. Get this? She had unbraided her hair. There was an audible gasp from the disciples. Women did not let their hair down in mixed company. It was scandalous. And that was just a start. She was carrying an ornately carved alabaster flask or jar of pure nard. And I'm sure that has a nicer ring to it in Hebrew. But this eau de nard was imported from northern India or the Himalayas. It was a thick essential oil used as a perfume or an incense or an herbal medicine. And it did not come cheap. 300 denarii, about a year's wages, maybe the equivalent of about ten dollars to $25,000. Now, I'm not sure if Martha and Lazarus were in on it or if it was a surprise to them too, and I'm not sure where she got it, if it was a family heirloom or if she had pooled her money with Martha and Lazarus, perhaps sold some property to purchase it on Amazon. Some say their family came from money, but I'm not so sure. Either way, this is costly. Mary walks toward Jesus, falls once again at his feet, and quietly breaks open the bottle. Bowing low, she slowly pours it out on her Lord's feet, careful not to lose one precious, valuable drop. As she does, the fragrance of the oil perfume fills the room. It's a strong but sweet aroma. 
This isn't diluted, it's the concentrated stuff. It's like when you walk into a good Indian food restaurant, that smell is thick. Or when you know someone is smoking brisket next door and the whole neighborhood smells like heaven. It's all about food. If you didn't see what was going on, you definitely smelled it. She definitely, she definitely smelled it. She humbly takes her hair in her hands and using it as a rag, gently washes her Lord's feet. In a moment of worship, she pours out everything. This was a calculated and deliberate response, not an emotional impulse. This was intentional. You see, Mary, who weeks earlier cried out to Jesus, if only you were here. Then watching her brother come from death to life, she had seen, she knows what happens when Jesus shows up, even when it's not in her timing. She knew up here, and she knew down here. She lived it. She had seen it. It was real. I am the resurrection and the life. And she is compelled to worship. She saw Jesus' value. She knew who he was and wanted to respond appropriately. She knew, and the Apostle Paul would write later, in light of what Christ has done for you, in light of who he is, offer your lives as living sacrifices. Give your all. Offer everything. This is true worship. See, both aspects of her action, the extravagance and the method, were disturbing. Yet both aspects of her worship, the costly sacrifice and the humility, were pleasing and honoring to Jesus. The disciples were stunned. Judas, in particular, responds with dismay at such a waste. Why was this ointment not sold and the money given to the poor? Think of how much good you could do with ten to $25,000. How many homeless shelters you can help. How many food kitchens. How many children you could sponsor. That's a lot of money. And she's wasting it. Now, Judas makes a solid point. And the disciples nod in agreement. So Jesus turns to Judas. He looked at the disciple with eyes that pierced his very soul. He knew Judas. He knew his heart. He knew the true motive behind his religious words. Judas didn't care for the poor. He said it because he was a thief. And because he was the treasurer, he would help himself to the money bag. There was no lie that Jesus couldn't see through. Leave her alone, Judas. Back off, Judas. Shut your mouth, Judas. This was the same look he had when he overturned the money changers' tables in the temple. Calculated, directed wrath, as if to say, do not inhibit her worship of me, Judas. Do not cheapen this. She sees my value. She sees my worth. She pours out a year's wages on me. What would you do, Judas? Judas. Not only would you not do that, 
You're going to sell me for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. You have no intention of giving the money to the poor. You look only to help yourself, to line your pockets. You are a thief. Money is what is important to you, Judas. Money is what you value, not the poor and not me. Jesus knew Judas was a thief, yet did not say it out loud. He did not betray him, but rather endured him and did not call him out on his true motives. Jesus said to, the, to Judas and the disciples, leave her alone so she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This perfume was often used for festivities, but was also used in burial preparations. Jesus interprets this act as a foreshadowing of his burial. The royal Messiah, the giver of life, who brought Lazarus from death to life, is being prepared for a grave of his own. Mary had unwittingly poured it out on Jesus days before his crucifixion. Jesus carried the fragrance of that perfume the next day as he entered Jerusalem on a donkey with people crying out, Hosanna, King of the Jews. They smelled it. The aroma was strong and it lasted as he washed his disciples' feet in the upper room of the Last Supper when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. When he was betrayed by Judas, when he was sent to trial before Pilate, this act of worship stayed with him as he was beaten and hung on the cross to die. This beautiful aroma of costly perfume intertwined with the smell of blood and sweat and death. No, Judas, the poor are important and you should always care for the less fortunate, but worshiping me is always more important. You speak of social justice. I am social justice incarnate, but I won't be with you in this way for much longer. You don't know what this week holds for me. Judas, you're only concerned with building your own kingdom. Not only do you withhold your worship, you use religious rhetoric to disguise your selfish motives. You mislead others with the idea of a good thing, but your heart is deceitful. You only seek to further your kingdom, your power, your reputation, your pocketbook, your comfort, your future. But Mary has chosen to worship me. Mary chooses to value me and exalt me above all other things. Her pride, her reputation, her comfort, her savings account, her financial stability, her future. She knows who I am, and she knows what I have done for her, and she has sacrificially offered herself in a worshipful response. Her worship is not wasted. She is investing in an eternal kingdom, my kingdom, for my glory. So what's the point of the story? 
As I've been thinking about this passage, immersing myself into the story over the last few weeks, I am just amazed at this beautiful picture of love and worship. You see, Mary's worship is sacrificial and costly. Mary sees what is important and is willing to pour it all out in her worshipful response. After all, what is worship? Romans 12.1 says, In view of God's mercy, in light of what God has done for you, offer your bodies, offer your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Worship is surrendering everything. Worship is giving your all. Mary is a worshiper. She loves Jesus. She is a devoted follower. She listens to his sermons. She hangs on Jesus' every word. Not only does she already love Jesus, but she has recently seen Jesus bring her brother Lazarus back from the dead. She already loves his teaching, and she has heard of his miracles. And then she experiences firsthand, and in a very personal way, his power and his glory. She is a believer. Her sister Martha was one of the first to declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and Mary believes it too. God alone is worthy for who he is and what he has done, and worship is her only appropriate response. She is compelled to worship, not just sing a song. She knows who Jesus is and that he is worthy of everything, of all worship. She has seen what Jesus has done. She has seen his glory. In light of what Jesus has done for her, she is compelled to respond. To offer Jesus that which is important to her, that which is costly. She knows her everything, all that she has, still doesn't match his worth, his value, but she gives it all, not as repayment, but as worship. She doesn't waste her worship. She knew Jesus' value. He was worthy, and she was investing her worship into an eternal kingdom. Let's take a look now at Judas. And this can serve as a good reminder for us church people. Because remember, Judas was with Jesus for three years. He heard Jesus preach amazing sermons. He taught them with authority. He saw Jesus do amazing things. He saw the miracles. He saw the sick healed, the blind given sight, the lame walk. He saw Lazarus raised from the, from the dead as well, but responded in a completely different way. Judas sees Mary's extravagant, beautiful, and costly act of worship and only sees a waste of money. I mean, it's not even practical or useful. It's a waste. And I'm not sure all that Judas was thinking, but John's gospel gives us a clue. Because he writes in verse 6, he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. John gives us a clear picture of Judas's motivation. Judas sees this costly perfume used to worship Jesus, and he wants the money for himself. He was a thief. All Judas cares about was money. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money 
is the root of all kinds of evils. His first love was money. His first love was himself, really. He had selfish motivation. He only wanted to build and further his own kingdom. You know what makes it even worse? He disguises his selfish intentions with a good one. Wait, Jesus, what about the poor? You can do a lot of good with that money. How many times have we disguised our selfish intentions with good ones? We didn't make it to church today because we just needed some family time. We can't be a part of growth group or youth group because our kids are in sports, dance, or music, or have homework. I can't volunteer to teach Sunday school because I'm already doing some beach evangelism that day. Isn't that what you want us to do? I can't set aside time to pray or read the Bible or disciple someone because I have a busy schedule. I can't give money to a missions trip because I'm already giving to some good causes. But Jesus, knowing the other disciples have the same question, clarifies. The poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me. Jesus isn't making an economic statement, but telling them, or telling them not to give to the poor. He is telling the disciples to check their priorities. Worshiping Jesus is always more important. Whatever it is, Jesus is worth more. Yes, please take care of the poor, but God's glory is always more important. To be clear, family time, self-care, kids, extracurricular activities can all be good things. I'm not saying they're not, but the problem is when we start to prioritize good things over the best thing. Obedience, worship, God's glory. We start to choose our way over God's way. We choose our kingdom over God's kingdom. We need to seek after his kingdom first. And then, Ju and then Jesus reprimands Judas. Leave her alone, Judas. Don't hinder her worship. It's one thing you don't see my value, but don't stop another from bringing me glory. Don't let your personal motives get in the way of another. Don't let your kingdom get in the way of God's. Because, you guys, the kingdom of God is worth it. It's worth it. And if you're new here this morning, or if all this is brand new to you, please hear this. Jesus is worth it. The kingdom of God is worth it. Jesus says in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had so he could buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, there are only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, which leads to life. 
Or there's the kingdom of the flesh, or of our sinful nature, of the world, of ourself. And it leads to death. See, the kingdom of God brings light in the darkness. The kingdom of God is where slaves and prisoners are set free. The kingdom of God is where the lost are found, the blind see, the lame walk, and the deaf are brought to life. Refugees find a place to belong. The hopeless find hope. The broken are healed. Sorrow turns to joy. The guilty find grace. And the tired find rest. The kingdom of God brings truth when ours is built on lies. Our kingdom puts ourselves first and puts ourselves on the throne. There's worship, all right. See, we all worship something. The world around us says it should be you. You first. It's your right. You earned it. You deserve it. Have you seen commercials lately? Count how many times they tell you that you deserve it. You deserve a new phone on a faster network. You deserve that new Lexus. You deserve that promotion. You deserve to be pampered because you're worth it. You earned it. You deserve the best school, the nicest house, or whatever it is. It's all about you, you, you. You deserve the praise. You deserve the glory. But in Galatians 5, Paul says that the spirit and the flesh, that these two kingdoms, these two driving forces or motivations are directly opposed to each other. They cannot coexist. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. Which one do you value? Where is your treasure? Where is your priority? In which kingdom are you investing? Mary's worship was extravagant. Jesus was her greatest treasure, and she was willing to offer a year's wages, that which was important to her, because she saw Jesus' value. She offered it all for his glory. And I want to take you just on a quick tangent here because in, in worship pastor circles, there's conversations about writing songs that use words that, like, I give it all to Jesus or take my life or everything I have is for you. All to Jesus I surrender. Should that be our heart? Yes, absolutely. But are we forcing our congregations to sing these songs and therefore be hypocrites because we don't give it all, but we're singing it? It's a good conversation, and we need to understand and have the mindset that all we have is God's. Again, we are, we are to offer our lives as living sacrifices. And, per, and perhaps we sing these songs not as a promise, but as a prayer, setting our eyes and hearts on our goal with the intention of moving towards it. Maybe we don't give everything, but we need to be willing to those things that we hold on to so tightly, we need to be willing to worship. Costly sacrifice, because I say I'd give anything, right? 
but the reality is I'd give most. Some things are easier than others. We all seem to have things that we're okay with giving. Some time, some money, some control. The problem is that we're holding things back for ourselves. God wants us to give the best of our time, the best of our efforts, the best of our paycheck, our first fruits, not leftovers. Consider the areas of time and money. What's valuable to you? What about power or approval or comfort or control? Worship costs us something. So for Mary, her worship cost her a year's wages, and she took a hit financially. It cost her dignity, and I'm sure there are rumors going around and judgments being made. She was purposeful with the things that mattered most, the things that she held valuable. Her worship cost her something. So as I've been preparing this message for you this morning, my good friend Tyler asked what is costly worship for me. And I said, none of your business. <laughs> no, but I, I struggle with that answer. But I would say this. Preaching is something that I didn't want to do. I've been terrified of it. I don't do well with public speaking. Some people get up here and make it look so easy. Usually I start a sentence and I'm not sure how I'm going to finish it. It's a great fear of mine to be up here preaching. And I've been fighting this for as long as I can remember. I definitely didn't volunteer for this. John. In fact, I've lost a lot of sleep over this. I've been having panic attacks. I've been stressed and tense for weeks, and I've used up all my kids' massage coupons. <laughs> I'm sure I didn't have this much gray in my beard when I went to bed last night. It's really hot up here. <laughs> to you, it might not seem like much. But for me, this is costly worship. It is costly obedience. I've been struggling with this for weeks. It has cost me something. It has cost me comfort. My comfort zone starts right about here. It has cost me pride. Standing here in front of you wondering what you think of me and how I've wasted the last 30 minutes of your life. The truth is, if I were building my kingdom, I would stick to what I'm good at, something safer. Still good worship, but it doesn't cost me as much. But for this one time only, because I'm not sure who did first service, God has asked me to step out in obedience and willingly worship him through this message and offer this costly act of worship. Costly worship looks different for all of us because we are all worshipers, 
That's what we're created for. Worship comes very naturally to all of us. We are all used to sacrificing for the things we want. A vacation, a beach body, whatever it is, we're used to sacrifice. Judas was a worshiper. His worship was also costly. His was also sacrificial. He sacrificed his integrity, relationships, and he was willing to betray Jesus for money, for selfish desires, for his kingdom. The question is, what or who do you worship? What or who is on the throne of your life? Which kingdom are you investing? As we close our time this morning, I want to invite the band up to lead us in a time of worship and response. And as they come, I want to ask that we do two things. One, make yourself aware of what Jesus has done for you. His worth and his value. Read your Bible. Spend time in prayer and conversation with the Lord. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Share the good news with others. Be reminded of how he has rescued you because you are a sinner and you deserve death. But he took the bullet for you. You were drowning with no land in sight and he reached down and pulled you out. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. Be reminded of what Jesus has done for you. And the second thing, respond appropriately. Who you believe God to be, the size of our God is directly related to the size of our worship. If we have a small picture of God, one of convenience, a two Sundays a month God, one who is only worth our leftovers, a God who comes second to our kingdom, our worship response will be small. But if our view of God is big and we see his glory, his value, his worth, we will worship accordingly and our worship will be large. How big is your God? How will you respond? Would you stand as we pray together? Jesus, we ask that you would open our eyes to see who you are and what you have done. That we would see that you are a big God of great value, worthy of great worship. God, would you reveal areas in our life we need to surrender? Show us ways we put our own kingdom before yours. And forgive us, Lord. Help us joyfully surrender help us offer all 
over ourselves to you.